U of T professor Ambaris Chandra has written a lot about travel during the pandemic. He's written a lot about the pandemic and restrictions, period. And we had a conversation about whether or not a very incendiary suggestion by Emily Oster in The Atlantic, should we have a pandemic amnesty? Ah, it doesn't matter who was right or wrong. Let's just move forward. And it got a lot of opinion, as you might imagine, where that went, where that goes, and how he feels about it. Embarrassed Chandra joining me on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. I know you weighed in on this a little bit. Um, this is such a tricky conversation, but if the uh, <laughs> if the headline was meant to uh, encourage clicks it, and opinions, it certainly did that. Yeah, that's right, Greg. I, <laughs> it's kind of amazing how much this one article generated so much um, emotion and passion, and basically everyone disagreed with it, but for all kinds of different reasons. And um, I, yeah, I, I, I disagreed with it too, um, but... But I think, you know, different people have different takes on this. And uh, Emily, you wrote something that I think is absolutely true. And we had Emily on in the early days. I want to even say in fall of 2020, when everybody is discussing what should we do with schools? How much of a wait and see approach should we take? And and we're losing valuable time here to get kids back uh, in person. But as you wrote, Emily was completely right on schools. She was brave enough to speak out when many economists were shamefully silent. That's right. I I know Emily a little bit professionally, and mm-hmm. I know that it was very difficult for her to take the position she did because she got a lot of hate, um, a lot of vitriol directed towards her. Uh, you know, um, I, I could see that. And yet what she was saying was essentially just standard mainstream um, economic logic. We didn't have enough data on, the, you know, the potential harms of opening school, uh, the potential benefits of closing schools. But we knew there were huge harms of, of, of keeping them closed, if anything, longer than a short period of time. There's a lot of academic literature showing that, you know, kids are harmed. Low-income kids get, you know, they're out of school. They don't get access to meals. They are in precarious situations at home. Plus, there's effects on their learning, long-term learning, long-term earnings, uh, all of these things. And so we have plenty of data on that. And Emily was just highlighting what, frankly, um, my colleagues all agree with, but many people were just also afraid to speak up. She wasn't, uh, and she did speak up. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because people have asked me, um, and I think I have an easier time being able to do it, where if you get something wrong, I I can't wait to drive in the next morning and and make sure uh, I got it right. I try not to dig in too deep. I understand politics as politics on all sides of the political spectrum, but I I just think there's enough people going, you're not helping the process here with with trust and, and distrust when it comes to public health or politicians. No one is explaining, hey, guys, listen up, gather around. I got this wrong, and this is what it should have been. No one's doing that in the public eye. None of the people we vote for and none of the people that are that are really prominently, you know, front facing on this. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the problem, I think, is also exacerbated by if you're a public figure and you've taken a strong stance on a certain issue, then it's very difficult to publicly admit you were wrong. I mean, I think it's just human nature, but especially in this social media age where we, where, you know, some public figures have big followings and people to look up to them and they might feel that admitting they might have been wrong about something is uh, losing face or, or letting down their supporters or their team. And that's a, that's a real problem, especially if scientific experts can't admit that new data contradict their position. It's a real problem. Do you think there's a point in time where that just happened that people and a lot of people will isolate and maybe they will and maybe they won't. A lot of people, I think, would isolate 
Donald Trump. And we would look and say, here's somebody that will lie, lie, lie. He'll throw everything out there. And if you believe some of it, he's more ahead than if he just told you the truth about it or was accountable for what he didn't get right. Is that where it all started and began? Because we're we're facing a real hailstorm from our politicians right now in trying to figure out who's going to be accountable and who isn't. Yeah, that's right. I, I actually do think that that's a big part of it. You know, we already knew the political discourse in the U.S. was already very polarized. But with Trump, everything became centered around him. Either, you know, you completely agree with every single thing he said or you completely disagreed with every single thing he said. And so when he came out and took strong positions on the pandemic, a lot of people just reflexively took the opposite positions without even necessarily thinking them through. I think he got a lot of stuff wrong, of course, but just because he took a position doesn't mean you have to automatically oppose it. But I think that's what ended up happening. And I get it, too, because Emily writes in her piece about sort of, you know, not doing a victory dance, not dunking on people, not bragging when when masks come off in schools and very little happens. I get it. Don't you know, don't dance on on the graves of those who um, who got it wrong when you you were adamant because you do a lot of uh, travel research and travel data. You said we should be able to take masks off people on airplanes and chaos won't ensue. And you were right about that. So there is an element of of, you know, owning what you got wrong, but also not dunking on those who got it wrong. But it, it is frustrating when people don't aren't accountable and they don't apologize. Yeah, I think that's right. Again, I think it's human nature. It's hard to, you know, publicly change your mind and admit you were wrong about something. A few people can do it, but it's honestly many people find it difficult. And then it's hard to avoid gloating. I think that's also just <laughs> a basic human nature. <laughs> do I? Do you think I have it right about the U.S. elections? I, I know a lot's been made about um, female voters becoming mobilized, and I do believe that. And but but on the one side, I think a lot of it might be Roe v. Wade. A lot of it might be about abortion rights in the states. And I understand why women would mobilize and find that greatly concerning. I'm I'm staunchly uh, pro-choice, but I also do believe a lot of women are signing up and a lot of women are politically motivated because of restrictions that were placed on their kids. And they're quite fierce about it. So I don't know if those two positions embarrassed cancel each other out, but it wouldn't shock me next week. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I fully agree. There's, you know, plenty of uh, voters, but, uh, you know, probably women in particular who are galvanized by the Roe v. Wade uh, overturning as well as the restrictions. I, I also think it's going to be heterogeneous. I think I suspect those women who maybe care a little less about abortion, maybe if they're older, it doesn't directly affect them. Maybe they don't think about it, but they're galvanized by the restrictions and, and plenty of other women are galvanized the other way. So how it's going to play out, we'll see. Um, you know, the we've got six days to go in the mm. U.S. election or a week. But yeah, that's that, that's going to be really interesting to see what the net effect is. And Baris Chandra, our guest on Toronto Today. One more for you. You've written a lot about the airlines, the travel industry. Um, what is your view on it a couple months into the fall? Um, we've obviously lifted that mask mandate. I think we're getting less stories of chaos and disorder at Pearson Airport. But I can't tell if it's just gotten that much better or whether we pivoted away. Well, it has gotten better. There's no doubt about it. There's data that's clear that it's gotten better. But we also expected it would get better. Compared to the summer, you know, average total travel numbers are down. So there's just a lot less pressure. So this isn't surprising. What's The, the million-dollar question is what's going to happen over the Christmas travel rush when numbers spike again in terms of travelers, that is, um, will, the, will the staffing levels be adequate to meet that? And actually, I'm a little worried that they may not be, but let's see. And Barish, thanks so much for the time. I hope your uh, school year is going great. And, and thanks for always making time for our show and our audience. You know, I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Greg. And Barish Chandra uh, joining us.